0: Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Nally Palamides, whose new one-person show, Nate, premiered on Netflix today. This show, man. I, I saw her doing it live in Brooklyn in-, in the summer of 2019 after hearing for years how unique and hilarious and gutsy she was, and I was not ready. In Nate, Nally Palamides plays Nate Palomino, a, a lovable idiot trying to figure out dating and overcoming toxic masculinity in the post Too era. Uh, And and the show is a reflection of her unique journey through comedy. Uh, It's part sketch character. It's part devised theater. It's part clowning. And when I say clowning, it's the sort of fancy... French derivative kind. Uh, I'm no big city clown expert, but but it'll be useful to know a few things for this interview. Uh, Clowns aren't just the red nose rubber-chicken, birthday party kind. Uh, As Natalie likes to say, Charlie Traplin was a clown. Lucille Ball was a clown. uh, More recently, Sacha Baron Cohen uh, is someone who studied clowning. Clowning is a comedic performance art that necessitates a a willingness to take risks and use failure as a springboard to the next moment. Uh, It's an art form that needs to be done in front of people as clowns are supposed to be vulnerable with the audience. They, They must connect with the audience. They must follow what the audience gives them. And because of the mix of all those backgrounds, she has such a unique relationship with her audience. She's constantly playing with them. She's constantly pushing their buttons. She she gets a lot of volunteers and makes them uncomfortable. And she she's able to sit in discomfort longer than I think any comedian I've ever seen. Uh, and I could say anecdotally as a person who was not called on, who tried very hard not to be called on the entire time, I was like trying to hide in the corner. And uh, you know, I loved every minute of it. What is amazing is they were able to capture that film. It it really is a remarkable comedic achievement. This is the type of thing that I I always want to see in comedy. It's just so daring and unique and pushes the boundaries of the form. In the scene we're going to play, which comes fairly early in the show, Nate takes a log he was chopping with an axe for no real reason and places it center stage and sits down. It's a moment to give the audience some insight into the character before a bunch of crazy shit happens. Namely, soon after, he wrestles a male audience member, both uh, with their shirts off. One physical thing of note. After Nate says express yourself for the second time, he pours the Croix seltzer on his cheeks. It it will make sense soon enough, I promise. Well, not totally, but it'll make enough sense soon enough. So, here is Nally Palomides. Ex. Ex. Ex.
2: Ex. ex. My ex. She, uh, she just broke up with me. And I asked her everything. I asked her before I kissed her. I asked her before I ate her pussy. Damn, I miss that tuna casserole. <laughs> I uh, I even asked her to uh, take my Gam Gam's ring, but she said no. Come on, Nate, express yourself. Come Express yourself. <laughs> well, so that's what crying feels like. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever find love again. Although, I have started noticing my art teacher, Ms. Jackson. I'm taking this adult night painting class over at the local middle school. You know the one. <laughs> so I guess I could use some relationship advice. Anybody here in a relationship? Who's here with their partner right now?
1: So I'm here with Natalie Palamides. Thank you for joining me. So... Uh, before I want to back up and we discuss sort of your and Nate's journey together, um, just for context, I I want to discuss a little bit of Nate as a finished product, specifically since this is an audio medium first, um, can you describe Mm -hmm. what Nate looks like to the people who have not seen video or pictures of him yet?
3: Yes. So Nate has a big black mustache, big black eyebrows, Big black sideburns, a mysterious black eye that's never explained, um, uh, scruffy black hair, um, uh, a buffalo plaid jacket, uh, thick chest hair, and um, some army pants and big black boots.
1: Was that an image that you sort of had... And whenever you started getting to this part of the show, was that sort of the image you had in your head? It was like, what is this person? You had that image. Did the image almost come before other parts of the character?
3: Of the full costume? No. I, I started developing the character maybe eight years ago now. And he didn't even have a mustache back then when I first started him. So uh, I call that Baby Nate. And he <laughs> wore more like a baseball shirt. The costume was something that I found... Uh, just throughout the workshopping of the show and um, his black eye wasn't there until maybe a couple workshops in. And yeah, just definitely some details, mm. you know, came in throughout the workshopping process. I had black pants and like a black button down t-shirt that I wore initially. Um, he always wore some sort of bandana around his head. I forgot to mention that. Mm-hmm. He he always kind of looks like a badass, a sloppy badass dude mm-hmm. um, with an exposed chest, a hairy chest. That's always been consistent. He's always been pretty hairy.
1: And, and who is Nate? Especially as the moment that we're going to talk about, who is Nate in this moment? Who is Nate?
3: Nate, I would describe him... Uh, simply as a douchebag with a heart of gold. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think by the end of the show, he's still a douchebag with a heart of gold, but he grows by learning about himself and about others and about uh, communication, Mm -hmm. I suppose, and uh, vulnerability. And um, yeah, there's different ways that he grows and opens up. And I would mm-hmm. say that's how he changes throughout the show.
1: So he becomes um, more
3: comfortable with vulnerability. I think is a big thing. Yeah.
1: So um, you mentioned a little bit. So let's flash back to eight years ago when you're still in college at uh, I believe you're still in college at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Where you? I know you took a workshop. Was it at school or is this in Philadelphia?
3: Yeah. Well. So it it was a workshopping of a play. Um, so. I was actually workshopping a piece called I Promise Myself to Live Faster with the Pig Iron Theater Company. Mm-hmm. And the piece was inspired by the work of Charles Ludlam. And he was really famous for doing uh, classical plays in drag and still being able to move people to tears.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, I took that as inspiration for my work, you know, from that point on. But also in the workshopping of that show, we were. Developing many, many, many drag characters. And so I was just just dishing out a bunch of dudes throughout that entire workshopping process. And um, Nate kind of surfaced that way. And the first piece that I did with him during that workshop um, was him sitting in silence in a basement, very melancholic, chugging a two liter bottle of soda. and burping. It was kind of a silent piece, seeing this very masculine guy, really sad and vulnerable and intermittently burping. And then I think also part of the comedy from the piece came from the um, the task of having to finish this bottle of soda.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When does Nate show up again and sort of, but also where had he existed sort of in your repertoire of characters or, or voices up to the mm-hmm. point where you then do him again.
3: Well, so I would bring him back every so often in some sketches. Um, I made a video with a uh, baby Nate, uh, with a sketch group called little red feathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could probably find it on YouTube. It's just called Nate. And, uh, then I brought Nate back to live theater, or live comedy. When I got back from Edinburgh in 2017, mm-hmm. um, At the Lyric Hyperion, which is one of the clown hubs in Los Angeles, we throw up these shows called The Incubator. Mm -hmm. And basically, um, it's kind of a week-long boot camp of, of shows where on the first night, you put up something brand new, and then you do that show every single night, and your piece develops throughout the week, and everybody who's in this variety show watches each other's bits and helps them helps their friends develop their pieces. And um, so the the director of that show, Dr. Brown, who also directed Nate and my other solo show, um, he uh, directs the incubator shows and he always encourages us to try something we've never done before Mm -hmm. or that's felt risky. And so um, in a previous incubator, I had blown fire. And so I was like, oh, what else feels risky to me? How about wrestling? And so I was thinking, ah, what could be a good character to wrestle with? And I just pulled out Nate out of my back pocket and came up with the wrestling scene that you see in the full long hour show. But that that was the first 10-minute piece that I created from the show. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Was Andy Kaufman an influence? In that
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. I love Andy Kaufman. And, yeah, he's definitely always lingering in my subconscious mind, for sure. What,
1: so what was it about wrestling that seemed risky? Like, w- in particular, wrestling?
3: Well, just, I think uh, it's a funny idea to wrestle shirtless with another man. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of taboo. Also, you're putting your body at risk by challenging someone to a physical fight and i'm challenging men who are uh you know most of the time have a physical advantage over me in terms of strength and weight and mass um Mm -hmm. so that's risky and um yeah i think challenging anyone to a fight is uh risky i don't know what you get up to on on weekdays no i guess i i i I
1: I asked partly because i literally if you google like any review of nate or or you they all everyone will describe you as fearless it is the it's like the most common adjective i think describing you so i'm trying to get a sense of when you a person who's described as fearless and we can describe you can tell me if you actually are not a fearless person are (laughs) asked to do something risky it's it's an interesting disconnect because you're like, well, you understand what risks are, but is it a thing that you necessarily are do you feel fear when you do these things? I guess my question is do you feel the emotion you imagine other people would fear feel doing these things? Like are you afraid is that necessary like or if you are afraid how do you then approach things that you're afraid of?
3: Sure, sure. You know, I do have a very high tolerance for fear, I suppose. So whenever, like, Dr. Brown asks us to try something risky or that we feel is risky, um, I have do have a hard time thinking of what that could be because I'm like, well, nothing really scares me. I mean, maybe— I would never want to do bodily harm to myself, Mm -hmm. but, but I don't think, um, I don't think like actually hurting yourself is risky or like seeking out actually hurting yourself. I don't think that's risky in the ways of comedy, you know, that's Mm -hmm. something, something different. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's challenging for me to feel fear on stage. I'd say what, what, I'm most after is like an adrenaline rush, Mm. I guess. I don't really feel scared. I mean, I definitely get nervous before I do a show and especially before I try a new bit. Um, But uh, I'm not scared. I'm more excited to try something that I think is crazy. yeah. And like to shock people, I think is so much fun.
1: So what was it about the, the first time you did the wrestling that, from that point, what did you feel like worked about it and what made you think, oh, maybe there's sort of more here? Sort of what is the process sort of from that to the now we're going to start in earnest trying to maybe make something out of this?
3: From the wrestling bit? Well, the the bit, 10-minute the bit was so successful and I had... Already been thinking about what I was gonna make for my next solo show because I had just gotten back from my first Edinburgh where I did a pretty good job and uh, was trying to.
1: You won best. You won best
3: newcomer, correct? Yes, I won best newcomer. So I was trying to ride that wave, you know. Yes. And uh, everybody was encouraging me to make a second show. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then when that bit went so well, I was like, okay, I can definitely make 60 minutes off of this guy, this character. And um, the way I kind of work is just by scheduling one-hour slots at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and just booking myself on shows around town at the Virgil and Satellite, etc., And um, if I book like a one hour show at the Lyric, I'll just invite people for free to come watch me try a bunch of stuff. And a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff is really, really bad. And then whatever seeds of what I improvise are good, I keep and I try again the next workshop. And that's kind of how I keep building my shows It's just keeping what works and bringing them back and refining them and trying them again and again and again.
1: When you're trying in the trying phase, how thoroughly are you beating out what you're going to do? Is it just sort of like you have ideas? Is it a amount where you're like, okay, I will like try to think of like forty minutes worth of material, and twenty minutes I'm going to have to find it. How much of it is hoping that you're you're essentially just jumping and hoping on the other side there is you know someone there to catch you?
3: Initially, a lot of it is not very well thought out at all. At most, I'll maybe have, you know, five to ten beats for a bit Mm -hmm. that I want to try. And most of the time, I'm just starting with an image that I have in my head. So there's a part in the show where I bring out a log and an axe and start chopping wood. Mm -hmm. And, it's you know, it's just there for a moment. But it just came from me wanting to use that image. I just... You know, I jot down on a list different images and uh, just try them out on stage. And I start with the image and then I see what comes from that, you know, just through improvisation Mm -hmm. and and playing with the audience, too. Um, So much of how I work is through play with the audience and through improv. And um, yeah, but sometimes I mean, you know, I do think. I do think of stuff, you know, I don't want to discredit (laughs) myself there. I think of jokes. So like, for example, um, during the wrestling bit, like one of the gags that I initially thought of was, oh, I'll ask the audience member, I'll ask the girlfriend uh, what kind of candy she prefers and I'll ask her if she likes uh, licorice or chocolate. And then if she says chocolate, I'll ask her milk or dark and then if she says licorice, I'll ask her Twizzlers or Red Vine. Mm-hmm. And if she says Red Vine, I'll say Black or Red. And if she says Twizzlers, I'll say Pulls or Classics. And I had all those candy options on me um, <laughs> at the time when I was workshopping that bit. And then, you know, it turned into this gag where I just have tattoos. Yeah. Um, not to give it away, but yeah, I just gave it away. But um. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So Uh, sometimes I have the joke planned out like that. And then how it kind of is refined is through simplification and, you know, finding a more economic way to do it. Uh, And then other times it's expanding it. So sometimes it's it's slimming it down and sometimes it's expanding. So the axe chopping the the wood with the axe that turned into just a transition piece Mm -hmm. And then there were, there were images that I started from like, I, I don't know why I tried this, but it was Nate in a wedding dress, putting on this unicorn head. I just had that image
2: sure. and
3: I, I danced around, um, with that and I tried that for like maybe a couple of minutes and then I just took the mask off and I was like, okay, that's that. That didn't work. <laughs> that was that.
1: Do you say out loud to the audience that didn't work or is that yeah. an internal?
3: Yeah, no, sometimes I'll say it It depends how far along in the workshopping process I am. So if I'm in a place where I'm just trying out different pieces, you know, oftentimes I'll I'll just drop character and be like, oh, that sucked or whatever, (laughs) or, or even in character, be like, that was bad. (laughs) or whatever but um yeah the next one i was gonna say was nate was saving people from a burning building
2: Mm
3: -hmm. uh so i filled up the room with a fog machine and put on this like really huge flame retardant suit and was like carrying audience members the best i could over my shoulders onto the stage and like (sighs) rescuing them by pulling them on the stage anyways it was terrible really really bad stuff but um,
1: when when things aren't working, I, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more of that, because in some ways it it's like when a person starts stand up like a, for the first time ever and and, and they try things and, and over time the audience sort of tells the performer what version of them makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. like they'd be like, oh, your persona got to be this because this is what we like most about you. And then yeah. the comedian will become that way. Yeah. I was wondering what it's like with Nate. Like, do you feel like you know who Nate is and then you just got to figure out ways to communicate that? Or are you essentially sort of creating character with the audience while you're trying these things out?
3: Hmm. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned that, like, the comedian listens to what the audience likes because that's a big part of clown and what they teach in beginner clown classes. There's this exercise where um, you have a friend on stage and a friend backstage and the person who's backstage isn't allowed to look while their other friend chooses a very specific pose. Mm -hmm. And then they have to come out on stage and try to figure out what that pose was. And when they get, when they're getting closer to the position, the audience claps. And Mm -hmm. when they're getting like, very close to success, the audience claps louder. And so it teaches and then when you get far away from it, the clap, the clapping goes away. So it teaches you to listen to what the audience likes and to follow the laugh and to follow, yeah, just what people are liking. And so yeah, a lot of the times they teach that you should drop your planned bit and follow whatever people are laughing at, mm-hmm. and play that out fully in a game, and then you can always return to what you had planned. Um, but never always be in the moment. And uh, in terms of like creating Nate, I think like yeah, I definitely probably you know adjusted the character based to what based on what people were. Um, responding to you know mm-hmm. but um I-, I did have him pretty well figured out going into it but i'm sure that i i adjusted for what the audience was approving of and then if they disapproved of something you know you either drop it or you lean into it if mm-hmm. they're you know um, like
1: yeah. do you when you say you sort of knew who he was is it a thing where the example I use when I ask people characters like, do you just sort of like instinctually know like what Nate's favorite movie is?
3: Hmm. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When you're in character, when you drop into a character, you kind of drop into their mindset. So Mm -hmm. I don't think I, Natalie, like right now, when you ask me what Nate's favorite movie is, I have no freaking clue. But if I was in character, I would probably respond with something that was in in line with Nate's personality and everybody, everybody would be like, yeah, that makes sense that yeah, that's yeah. his favorite movie. Yeah, it's more about like dropping in and then just being in that mindset and then whatever you say mm-hmm. is sincere, is honest. Yeah.
1: So – Around this time, also, Me Too is happening um, and and all these stories are coming out. And obviously, this show is involved in a lot of those conversations, but a little bit tangential to explicitly the sort of Me Too movement. Were mm-hmm. there times where there were more parts that were more explicit about it?
3: Yes, 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 yes. Definitely during the workshopping process. And initially, when I started workshopping the show, I had no intent of exploring consent or the gray area of consent but all of this stuff about me too kind of erupted and i initially was just thinking oh i'll make a show about masculinity and toxic mm-hmm. masculinity and i was like how can i make a show about that and not address this that is so kind of intertwined um with it like you can't really explore toxic masculinity without exploring consent but um Yeah, I was really scared to initially explore it because it is such a sensitive subject. And I just, you know, posted up trigger warnings outside the theater door saying this show is going to explore consent and um, toxic masculinity and may be triggering for some people. And I just, uh, you know, on those signs would encourage people to just feel free to leave. Mm. You know, I I would just say, you know, leave at any any time, you know, and because I feel like a lot of people feel stuck in the seats because they don't want to feel rude or like they don't want to hurt the artist's feelings, maybe. Or at least that's always why I feel stuck in my seat if I think a comedy show sucks or something. Um, But sometimes you just got to bust out of there. But, um, yeah, uh, so uh, there were... um, bits that I was exploring, like I had um, a box of Tic Tacs and I would invite people on stage to have a drink with me and I would like pop a couple Tic Tacs in their Mm. drink. And, you know, it was very obviously Tic Tacs. I still kept it in the Tic Tac box, but that just (laughs) did not, did not sit well with the audience at all. And I was just like, okay, yeah, we do not like that. We Got do it. not like that. Got it. Noted. You know, I thought it was absurd enough, but, you know, some stuff, it's interesting, like, where you can get laughs and where you can't, because I feel like definitely innate, the show as it exists right now still has moments where you would think, like, oh, how is how is a laugh happening? I'm like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. okay. People are laughing. <laughs> that's good. Like, you know, it's dark comedy for sure. But, um, yeah. And then there's, you know, silences and tense moments where, where, uh, they're supposed to be. So that's good too. You know, the audience is in tune, but I just, I just think it's interesting, Yeah. you know, when people decide it's okay to laugh and when they don't, um, there was also another scene I tried out. I think it was, in, you know, directly inspired by Harvey, but I invited, a an audience member up on stage to audition you know it's very Mm -hmm. on the nose do an audition I had a script for them and then I just started jacking off sure while they were sitting there and just played around with that um yeah so
1: but so consent obviously ended up becoming a lot of the focus how did you what were you seeing or sort of what were you experiencing that sort of helped you land on your focus on the idea of consent and and your angle on it? How did you sort of land on that specific um, perspective that sort of helped you orient the entire show?
3: Well, I think once I had acknowledged within myself that I was going to approach this subject, it uh, you know was in the back of my mind. And so it just came out during improvisations like, the chugging contest that happens at the top of the show. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
3: I didn't, I knew I wanted to do a chugging contest with the audience. So that was one of those images that I started with. I was like, okay, chugging beer or chugging cans. And that through improvisation turned into this chugging contest. And I had just improvised. uh, Whoever wins gets to do whatever they want Mm -hmm. to whoever they want. So that was just improvise, I think. And, it, you know, thematically revolved around consent because I had that in the back of my mind that I wanted to explore that. And then, you know, the approaching of the audience members after I had won the chugging contest that was initially improvised as well. Uh, So uh, yeah, so my director would always say to me, you clock it and you keep it. So write it down and then you know, the way that I work and the way that I was taught to work by, you know, many of my clown teachers, uh, and especially my director is to do it the exact same way that you initially did it and that you initially improvised it. Cause sometimes, you know, changing one little beat or one little word or one small movement throws off the whole gag. Um, I
1: was talking to, um, one of Helen, who I believe, who interviewed you for the magazine. and Yeah, I love and, Helen. And the thing we we're talking about the process and she was really interested about the editing of the show like this because it's, you know, it's, I imagine there's parts that grow and shrink and, and throughout all of it and, it, and mm-hmm. we were both really curious about how do you um, how do you edit down the show while still capturing the sort of energy of how you are as a performer where there is so much that is uncertain you know as as she put it it's like you're the spaghetti that you're throwing against the wall like you there is this thing of you are exploring and trying things out but you have to condense the show what is editing for you how do you sort of make sure every beat you have is part of the show and everything that you kick out is not in it
3: it's really tough and sometimes you take it out and then you have to put it back in or you rearrange it uh A big part of my process is putting bits down on note cards or pieces Mm -hmm. uh, or just gags on note cards. And I structure the entire show on my wall with these Mm -hmm. note cards and put them in the order of the show. But, um, you know, when I was figuring out the structure of the show, I took all the pieces that were successful from the workshops that at that point were just pieces Mm -hmm. and found a storyline within those and and just based on all the pieces that I had I was like oh this is a love story mm-hmm. um, but yeah before I went to Edinburgh the show was still... <sighs> 15 minutes long you know it's got to be an hour you know based on the the slot that you booked you could book an hour and 15 minutes in edinburgh but i had an hour slot that year and honestly it was better off for it we didn't need all that uh, exposition in there and you know maybe it's a little too expositiony even right now but uh you know some stuff i just don't know how to get around without explaining but but the show is so much fun like putting it up live every time and you know there is so much play and um i give the audience so much room to kind of fuck with me that it's fun it's fun for me every time i do it it never feels laborious or anything to keep trying out the show over and over and over again um with these different structures keeps it exciting for me yeah, yeah. to also like have to remember it and you know it's a good challenge
1: um are you i feel like i from the sense i get is that you you work very very hard for a show like this where ultimately you could beat it out but it's a show that your process demands being in front of people and you can only be in front of people you know an hour a day so many days a week mm-hmm. what is the part of the process that is not act like are you sort of just constantly like thinking about this show at all hours until it's sort of done. Like, what is the sort of non-active process?
3: Yeah, it is all-consuming to the point where, you know, I can barely make anything else when I'm working on an Edinburgh show. Like, mm. it kind of takes up my whole life, and I'm always thinking about it. Um, and even when I'm at like thrift stores, and I'm I'm just always thinking about gags and bits or if i see something at a thrift store that's cool i'm like oh wonder if i could put that into the show or like yeah i'm just um but yeah i think a lot of my friends would probably describe me as a hard worker i'm i'm pretty ocd mm-hmm. and i will harp on a bit and put it up again and again and again and again and again and again and again until i can Get it exactly right, and you know sometimes I still can't even get it right, and it yeah. just really kills me. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh,
1: I feel really, that was like that. The way you phrase it, I just that was very uh, sweet. I was like, oh no.
3: Oh, yeah, I mean. It's, you know, it's sincere. Like, it yeah. does it chew me up inside when I can't get something just right or I can't nail a bit. Or, like, you know, the the show is so alive that um, sometimes, th- you know, jokes don't land ex- exactly how they should. Even in, in, in comedy in general, you know, yeah. especially live shows. Like, they don't always land as good as they did the night before or the show before or, or you know, they— They don't land as well as the show will tomorrow or the audience is different or whoever you pick to interact with. uh, They give you a hard time or they're shy or, you know, and sometimes you got to throw people back to. And but then in Edinburgh, like you have a kind of a split second time frame to decide if you're going to play with this person or not because you don't have too much time. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a show on right after you. Not so, much flexibility.
1: So, for to to get back to the scene that we, we played at the top, how how did this scene come about, and how does it fit into the show?
3: So, the scene where the I'm pouring the can on my yes. face, Nate. Yes. Yeah, so how does it fit into the show? So, this scene comes into the show uh, right after Nate reveals to us that he was going to propose mm-hmm. to his girlfriend, and she broke up with him. And uh, he's really trying to express himself, which, you know, when he says express himself, we all, I think, can understand that he's trying to cry. Yeah. And so this is kind of a runner throughout the show. He says a few times, express yourself, Nate. Come on, Nate. Express yourself. Yeah. And um, we build from that moment where we initially see that he uses a can of water to feel what tears are Mm -hmm. Um to the end of the show where he's having a much more genuine um, moment of expressing himself. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and the other joke is the the tuna casserole joke.
3: Oh, yes. That's also a runner throughout the show. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So he says, uh, damn, I miss that tuna casserole when he's talking about eating out his ex-girlfriend's pussy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh <laughs> It later informs, this is a spoiler, I guess, but an art piece that he has created, yeah.
1: It, was that something you thought of ahead of time? Was that something you riff? Where, do, where does that come it from your brain to be a major part of the show?
3: Yeah, so sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes it's a catch-22. Sometimes I'll think of one thing before the other. In this case, the payoff of the joke, which is the art piece, that didn't come till way after I started mm. saying tuna casserole. I just started saying tuna casserole as a reference for his ex-girlfriend's pussy just because I thought it was kind of nasty and fun and um, endearing that he liked to um, think of his girlfriend's pussy in this, like, you know, tasteless but thoughtful way. mm mm-hmm. um, And then uh, initially when I was workshopping pieces, um, I had used just a random painting of a woman and I had it hanging on his wall and he was like looking up at it sad as if it was a painting of his girlfriend. And then I thought, oh, wait, I'm a painter. I should I should paint Mm -hmm. what this girlfriend is like and then i was like oh i should paint it using the tuna casserole joke and um yeah that painted that's actually a self-portrait
1: i was wondering if you painted it because i knew you're yes
3: yes so yes i i painted that and it is it's me
1: that's it's interesting because now you you end up then playing the the it then expands the amount of characters you're hypothetically playing in this. Sure,
3: <laughs> sure, yeah, I guess so. But I left it faceless, you know, for the purpose of being the the every woman.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. What I like about both these jokes and arguably sort of all the sort of joke lines in the show, opposed to sort of the more bigger comedic moments, is for, for how high-minded the concept is of this show and how hard you worked on it and how serious we are talking about it. These are like kind of stupid or lowbrow jokes. And, and I say yes. that with, with a lot of affection. <laughs> um, Definitely.
3: I love w- to ride that line of like uh, lowbrow and bet- you know, s- springing back and forth between lowbrow and high-minded. And um, yeah.
1: Um, I, I've heard you say that stupidity is is a compliment in clowning. or Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So like a lot of the times people will overhear me saying to a friend like oh my gosh you're so stupid or like you're so dumb and they look at me like I'm saying something mean but Mm -hmm. to you know to us it's a compliment because at at our best we're idiots we're playing these beautiful idiots that are so stupid and so dumb and so we think of dumbness and idiocy as these these things of beauty Mm -hmm. you know they're beautiful to us and it's um you know, a great success when you do something that's really, really fucking stupid. (laughs) So we're always calling each other so dumb and so stupid and fucking idiots. But it's a term of endearment because the clown is the idiot. You know, they're always figuring out ways to resolve problems in the most complicated, inefficient way. You know, like an example I always give is Lucille Lucy and Ethel um, eating yeah. the chocolates when they can't wrap them fast enough in the in the chocolate factory. You know, they're just like shoving the chocolates in their mouth, which is like the stupidest way to resolve that problem problem of the uh, conveyor belt going too fast.
1: It's 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 interesting you bring that up. I, I was thinking about that idea when I think about this scene because part of it is. To solve the problem of crying, which hypothetically is in some ways an easy thing, he thinks of the stupidest way of solving, which is pouring uh, seltzer on his Uh, face. Ah,
3: (laughs) yes, 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 exactly.
1: (laughs) So so, um, in what ways is Nate a clown or is doing the show clowning?
3: Yeah, well, I'd say the show is definitely a hybrid of many different things. I mean, clown in its purest form is definitely has more innocence to it than this show has um but uh i would say you know just Nate this this guy who's so deeply plagued by toxic masculinity trying his best to do mm. a show about consent um that has no clear message is is um a very well-rounded clown game within itself like a a show that's supposed to teach something and teaches maybe nothing. Um, Yeah.
1: But still being optimistic about it.
3: But still being optimistic. Yeah. The clown is always the optimist. So in the end of the show, he says, I hope the message was clear. And, um, you know, earnestly believing that he has delivered something that has been clear. And Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is not at all, (laughs) which is, you know, the gag. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the clown is always the optimist. And a story that a lot of my clown teachers have told is of the uh, clown student who is always raising his hand to answer the teacher's question and getting it wrong every single time, but always still raising his hand to answer.
1: We'll be right back with more Natalie Mm Palomides.
4: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: And we're back with Natalie Palomides. So in terms of sort of this as a clown and not a clown character, I have a bit of a sort of naughty question around this and I hopefully you can help me detangle it. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about the tension that exists here is uh clowning is sort of so rooted in vulnerability where mm. often characters are created in some ways to um prevent or or push away from personal vulnerabilities. You have this sort of thing in front of you. And I yeah. think uh, I think a, another useful word is sort of exposing, right? Like an outsider will see the show and, and think maybe you're you're very physically exposed as Nate, but I've heard you talk about, you don't even think of yourself as exposing yourself because this is Nate's body. So mm-hmm. so where are you in this? What what are you exposing? What are you not? What feels vulnerable? What isn't? I, again, I, I don't exactly know what the exact question is, but can you answer sort of all of this, all these thoughts I have around this subject?
3: You know, I'll do my best, Jesse. I, I mean, it's it. very layered, you know, it's a it's a seven layer dip. <laughs> sure. It's a it's a rainbow cake of a show and a character. But uh, I mean, I would say like <laughs> there's there's moments in the show, I think, especially when I'm speaking with a couple where you can see maybe Natalie pop out a couple of times where like the. The woman that I'm speaking with in the audience, she really surprised me with how sassy she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you can see a, a twinkle of Natalie's eye in there. But uh, and definitely if you see the show live, I'm not sure how much it's in the Netflix special, but there are moments where I'll break and like, you know, an audience member will make me laugh, um, you know, depending on was it, something you know, ridiculous, they say, or like a response that I've never heard to a question I asked before. Um, But uh, yeah, Nate is very much this mask that I'm wearing. So not to say that you can't do clown when you're doing characters. It's just a fine line to walk and you have to let yourself, you have to let the clown peek through sometimes. And I think the moments when I'm doing Nate and I'm doing clown simultaneously. That's when I'm like winking mm. at the audience, um, you know. So it's like I do something, and then I look to the audience and kind of, you know, with a knowing look that like isn't this so fucking dumb and ridiculous? Um, I think it. Yeah.
1: Do you feel vulnerable at certain parts?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, there are moments that certainly, like, take me out of the character uh, sometimes, you know, depending on the day when I'm doing the show. uh, Largely during the wrestling scene when I really have to be on alert and connect with the person across Mm -hmm. from me and kind of send some ESP messages to them and be like, okay, you know, I am, you know a vulnerable little lady. Like, before I went to Edinburgh, um, I didn't have any kind of uh, written directions or anything for the audience member that comes up to wrestle me. But when I went to Edinburgh, um, because they have so many uh, risk assessments uh, in the UK, they take theater very Mm -hmm. much more seriously than we do in Los Angeles. Uh, So they make you do risk assessments. And part of my... Risk assessment was that I would need to tell the audience member that I'm going to wrestle them and I had to ask them if they had any injuries Mm -hmm. that I needed to be aware of. And so the way I do that now is by there's a little piece of paper inside the um the waiver that I give the audience member to sign. And it says, you're about to wrestle Nate for real. Please let him know if you have any injuries or sensitivities. And also remember that Nate is just a little lady. So please (laughs) wrestle gently, but with passion. Um, Yeah, but sometimes and mostly, you know, before I had that little written note in there, uh, I really had to like sometimes step out of the character fully and be like you know this is just a show right or like whoa (laughs) like watch out we're just playing um and sometimes i would totally drop the voice sometimes i would stay in nate's voice and be like whoa whoa you know it's just a show man or like relax you know because i am taunting these guys and um you know sometimes it can get pretty intense like (laughs) depending on the person. And then sometimes it's so mild that I'm using my stage combat skills to just make it look like they're oh, doing stuff to me and I'm essentially, like, wrestling myself. So it's a wide range.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. Both the when I saw it live and this time, there is this moment where you see the man try harder as the time goes on. Yeah.
2: Like,
1: <laughs> and it's hard... And, he, there's a vulnerability to that man who, like unknowingly is revealing his desire to like be strong in that moment, um, yeah, yeah, it's so human, both both times. I was really just like, wow, this guy is now trying weirdly hard,
3: yes, exactly. Yeah, that is definitely um a big part of it most of the times that I'm wrestling. Like it becomes like really real for him that he's fighting for his girlfriends, <laughs> yeah love or his her honor um, uh, yeah.
1: yeah watch watching this special uh, one of the things I found fascinating is so after you say the tuna casserole joke um, you cut to a woman not laughing um, yeah <laughs> what is so incredible about seeing the show live is the entire room is lit and as an audience member since for the most part you've mostly performed it I know sometimes Dr. Brown has performed it but for the most part as an audience member I can tell you you're sort of looking around and you're you're nervous. What's going to happen? You don't know. And how did you go about trying to achieve that in a a film piece? How do you capture the sort of social aspect of of that tension?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, in the editing room, we're kicking ourselves for not getting enough audience shots. Like, we only had one camera on the audience. And um, uh, some of the times it wasn't even on the audience. So we really had to, like... Dig around to find audience shots, and we cut to that girl not laughing because that was the only shot we had, but also it was we thought it was funny that she wasn't yes, like finding it too funny. <laughs> so we thought it was funny that she didn't find it funny, yeah,
1: so and then in, were were there other things that you did to try to make it f- capture that same feeling? Do you, I mean, um, are you definitely. nervous that you didn't <laughs> capture it?
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, definitely. When we were editing, we were like, "Fuck, dude!" Like, oh my god! Like, we should have got way more audience reactions. But I think, um, you know, I th- I think we did a good job with what we had, and I think like, uh, what I like about Uh, The shots that we did get is like there's some shots from behind, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like some cameramen on stage that show me with the audience behind me. And um, I think that does a good job of capturing the energy and and seeing everybody having fun or not having fun.
1: um, One of the other decisions you guys make is you start the special with people talking about seeing the show, including mm -hmm. Amy Poehler. Um, can you talk about that decision?
3: Yeah, so um, I think largely it is to uh, get people to watch it um, <laughs> and to be patient with somebody that they have no familiarity familiarity with um, you know I'm not famous nobody knows who I am and so definitely like having Amy there to vouch for me hopefully will help people want to watch it I guess yeah, yeah. and um yeah definitely that was like informed also like in addition to like trying to get the show down to 1 hour um we also like cut one of my favorite parts at the beginning of the show where I'm just smashing bottles and sunglasses mm. but it's just um doesn't quite play the same Uh, without being there in the room and having the tension. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you could see, we just started straight with like the passing out of the LaCroix, which uh, really gutted me. Um, And maybe if I was famous, people would be patient enough to watch it.
1: Yeah. Like as a person who went to see it, I had some idea of the tone of it. And it's, it's almost like a trigger warning, but not with doing a trigger warning. It's basically being like, this is a show that you're going to have to sit through and it's like about subjects and it does I imagine for people who are going in completely cold mm-hmm. it's it's an easier it's like it's a it's like going into a, a pool through the steps slowly opposed to being like here's Nate you have no idea who this person is underneath.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But um it's kind of a cool intro now. It yeah. like it's uh it gets you pumped, I think. Yes. The with the, the style of editing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, I, so I want to look, talk a little bit about your relationship to audiences and the audience. And first by telling you the sort of audience member I am, um, which mm. I imagine you are familiar with all types. So I was the sort that tried to sit as far in the back as possible <laughs> and not make eye contact with you almost ever. Um, is that something you can read? Like, was it feel like when you are you have these moments that need audience participation and you are sort of this trapeze artist flying through the air and need to find the person who's gonna catch you. Are you able to are you like surveying the area, like the Terminator and figuring out what type of people everyone is?
3: Yeah, so it's it's a bunch of different things. So sometimes, uh, i'll I'll look for people who are smiling and enjoying the show. And then sometimes, I will pick out the people like you who are avoiding eye contact <laughs> just'cause i I think it'll be a fun challenge to get them to play along, and also by the same token, I'll pick out people who look like they're not enjoying the show at all mm-hmm. uh just for another challenge to like try to get them to have some fun and and laugh uh and sometimes you know that that uh I do disservice to myself by doing that, but yeah, and then uh, you know sometimes I use the technique like in the show when I call out "Hey Lucas," I'm essentially like it's funny how many people think I'm looking at right at them, and I'm mm-hmm. just looking into a I'm looking in a general general direction into a void, into the pitch black because that's actually a moment in the show where I'm in a spotlight and you know for you know a, a rare time the audience is in pitch black. Oh, interesting. And uh, so I'm just looking out into the abyss calling out, "Hey, Lucas," and I just wait for somebody essentially to volunteer themselves um, and say, "Hey, Nate, back to me." And sometimes it happens more quickly than than other times.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. the in in the I feel like the time I saw it live, it seemed like the people you called on were like, pretty game to do it where the special you, you, you find that couple who seem not that interested in doing it. And then the <laughs> woman seemed particularly not interested and but also like particularly played along to like whatever her character should be. And mm-hmm. I was like, and I think this is probably why it, it worked surprisingly well. I, I was like, oh, is this going to work taped? And it that guy I was like, oh, I think he does not want to do this. And then slowly he sort of gets caught up in, in it. Oh, yeah, Uh, the
3: the couple that I wrestle, or the guy that, yeah. Yeah, his, if I remember correctly, his friends were pointing to him. They didn't volunteer, and they were way up in the back, Um, and um, I don't know why I I was just, like, went for them. (laughs) I think sometimes it's fun to go with people sitting in the back row. They think they're not going to be part of it at all, and you just yeah, throw them a curveball with that. It's it's really good fun. to
1: know that if you do another show that I have to find a new place to hide. Yeah, um.
3: nobody's safe. <laughs> nobody's safe no matter where you sit.
1: Um, I, I've heard you talk about how do you balance your desire to take care of the audience with your desire to make them uncomfortable?
3: Oh, I just um, try to say, stay sensitive about where the line is. Mm-hmm. And... Some people, you know, may think that I crossed the line, but I don't know. It's just something that you can kind of gauge and feel out after, you know, performing a ton. Uh, right. You know, you just start to develop this relationship with listening to the audience, you know, like we spoke about earlier. And um, you, can, you can feel when you've totally lost them because you've gone too far. And... um yeah. So I try to just really practice riding that line and, um, just do my best to, you know, explore sensitive issues. Uh, you know, while we just, um, while also being sensitive. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, to also like have fun, like my goal is to make people think, but Most importantly, to make people laugh, you know, that's why I try to after that, you know, tense kind of moment at the Mm -hmm. end of the show, I try to have at least one one more joke, you know, Mm -hmm. because I want to send people out laughing. That's my that's my goal, first and foremost.
1: Yeah. I I want to ask you about the ending without necessarily spoiling too much of it, but the the sort of perspective on the ending, which is. Mm -hmm. um it's clear you do not want the show to be didactic. The show, if anything, is sort of against the idea that a show should tell you exactly what it's thinking. Yeah. But you, you clearly want the audience to feel something. What or what what is that feeling you're hoping for? Do you or is there a specific feeling? How do you create a show to create whatever feeling you do or do not want them to feel?
3: Well, yeah, I guess like you know, you spoke before about making people feel uncomfortable. And I guess my goal in making people feel uncomfortable and myself as well is to push people past this point of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, we pulled the Band-Aid off. We got past that point, And now we can have real conversations about mm-hmm. this thing. We got past the bad part. And, you know, there's that part in the show where Nate asks everyone a question and it's met with this silence in the room and then. Answers slowly trickle in and people see friends that they came with answering mm-hmm. different differently than they do. And um, I think the show or, you know, the atmosphere I'm just trying to create is. Um, or, yeah, it's just for people to I just want them to talk to each other yeah. about it, because I think uh, speaking face to face about sensitive issues in general, not just about consent, but about masculinity and, and anything else that, you know, we so often talk about on, on Twitter and these like very blunt forms of communication, um, need to be addressed while you're looking into somebody's eyes Mm -hmm. and you can breathe on them. You know, like we need to discuss these sensitive issues, face to face. Otherwise, we're never going to cover any ground and it's going to remain a hostile subject and a subject that people are afraid to approach with their friends because they're afraid of being viewed a certain way or hurting somebody or. Yeah, I just um, I don't think any real progress can be made on these kind of topics until we learn to talk about them face to face. And that's kind of the impetus for bringing the subject matter into the theater. It's like, what better place to bring people face to face than a room where they have to sit right next to each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: And I think it's, it's to that point that a clown rooted character is an interesting way because it's, it, it really like um, normalizes or demystifies like a person failing at this or being uncomfortable at this.
3: Yeah. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody Uh, knows what the right answers are. And I think a, a big uh, point that I'm trying to make is each situation is so specific. Mm-hmm. You know, and we need to talk about them in order to truly, like, figure them out.
1: So as a show about consent, how did it make you think about the relationship of consent between audience and performer?
3: Yeah, that's definitely a big part of the show, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, yeah, I am engaging the audience in so many different ways, and most of the time I'm, I am asking them, and some of the times I engage with them without asking them. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, that's that's part of the show. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, I try to do it in a way that is, you know, sensitive. And I, I try to, uh, you know, my goal is never to harm anyone. But, you know, there's a part of the show where um, I uh, flick – Uh, the man's nipples that comes up on stage. And a lot of the time that moment is met with the man saying, hey, you didn't ask. And uh, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. You Mm -hmm. know, like, because I'm so diligent at the top of the show asking people if I can um, touch them, that it's kind of a, a gag in that moment. And it also speaks to how we, you know, see men's bodies in a different way than women's bodies. Um, and it's like, it's more casual, like everybody's laughing at um, mm-hmm. you know me twerping this guy's nipples or whatever. But if I had done that to a woman, you know, at the top of the show, uh, it would have been taken very differently. So uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. And even, um, you know, I'm editing a trailer right now to put out for the show. And uh, Netflix is like, yeah, do whatever you want with the trailer. But unfortunately, we can't put it up on our platforms (laughs) unless your nipples are censored. And so. uh,
2: Unbelievable.
3: So it's just funny as I'm editing like my nipples. There's this one moment in the trailer where, you know, I'm twapping this guy's nipples and I, I have to censor my nipples, but not his. And we essentially look the same. You know, we're like roughly the same size. And have about the same size boobs, um, you know, My, I don't, I'm not really that gifted in that area. But, uh, yeah, so it's just, um, it's funny, yeah. you know. But, um, yeah, I I know, I, I can't really figure it out. It's just um, fun to present it and see how people react and is it okay, is it not okay, is it sometimes okay, does it depend on the int- does it depend on the intent does it depend on the energy of the person mm-hmm. like because sometimes you know uh and and maybe this you know this isn't pc to say but sometimes people give consent with their energy mm-hmm. right <laughs> and and that's my job as the performer to like feel out their energy but it's like sometimes like you know sex is something that you shouldn't uh leave up to energy. You know, when I'm twapping a guy's nipples, you know, that's not the same as if I'm going to have sex with him. Like, so I feel more comfortable making a decision based on the energy I'm receiving from him because of what I'm about to do. Um, If I was about to do something, you know, more uh, invasive or, you know, then you Know it's just it's nuanced, you know, yeah. Jesse. Like, I and know, so, God. uh, yeah, it's each situation is very specific, but
1: it did you find that I when you mentioned it being specific, did you find that which each show do you feel like different shows you play the situations differently and as a yes. result, the audience,
3: yes, each situation is different. Sometimes the guy won't even take off his shirt, and wow. uh, and I say, after. Usually after he says he won't take off his shirt, I say, okay, nobody has to do anything they don't want to do. I think I think I, maybe I say that even in the special or maybe it was cut, but there's a point where I ask him or I offer up my nipples. After I twap yes. his nipples, I kind of offer up mine and he says, no, no. And I'm like, come on, come on, you know, twap him. And then I say, okay, nobody has to do anything they don't yeah. want to do. And then I, you know uh, make them wrestle me, you yeah. know? but, <laughs> um, but again, like if he didn't want to wrestle me, you know, he doesn't have to, like yeah. I've had shows where people don't wrestle me or somebody else comes up to wrestle for, for their mm. girlfriend's honor. And, you know, they leave with their tail in between their legs or whatever. Or, um, sometimes they just stand there and I ha- ask them to hold my wrist and I'm um, wrestling myself. So, you know, when I say nobody has to do anything they don't want to do, I mean it, you know, for sure. But then there's also this pressure probably that they feel that yeah, because they're in a live show and an audience is watching them and, you know, they don't want to suck the fun out of it or whatever and they they feel pressure to play along. Um, you know, and that kind of speaks to pressures that, that we feel all the time mm-hmm. in these situations where we're being asked about consent. So I think it just, like, Brings an absurd angle, yes, as uh, to and consent,
1: they, and also makes it a little bit safer than and it's it's an interesting exercise in the conversation.
3: it's an exercise in the conversation. That's exactly it, Jesse. It's just like presenting people with all these different ways that consent can can be had and not be had. And, yeah, throughout the show, it happens many, many times, yeah, you,
1: you mentioned um feeling the energies of the people and having that Mm -hmm. be consent or not. In in what way is your connection to the audience spiritual? And and how is the performance like a ritual for you?
3: Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I think that any performer will, will tell you that they can feel the audience's energy. I mean, that's why most people do it, because it feels so good when you have a good show, like the energy, the positive energy that that you feel. And even after an audience member goes to a good show, they're all juiced up because yeah. of the positive energy that's in the room. So um, I think it just speaks to uh, the the power of, of positive energy and and laughter and joy mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and it also speaks to the power of like you know a, a room full of silence and the energy that's in that, and you can you can feel that when when there's tension in the room and when there's confusion and there's caution and trepidation. Like I'm not really sure. Uh, if it's spiritual, but Mm -hmm. I I guess so. I mean, yeah, it's a, I don't know, just um, you can feel when something feels good and you can feel when it feels bad and it's a large part of the human experience and that's what's missing from social media.
1: Yeah. You mentioned social media and I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of audience. You know, you, you, this show exists in a certain comedy and theater context, and then you're sort of bringing it to the contextless world of the internet. And and like you said, theater is a place where you can sort of put ideas in front of people and they just have to sit with it where the internet is, is not that. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you feel about this?
3: Well, I feel terrible about it, Jesse. It's like the internet is like, the great uh, uh, one of the greatest weapons against mankind it'll it's gonna bring us down because yeah like i was saying earlier we just can't make any progress on any kind of important issues until we get back to just having town halls you know like the internet cannot be our town hall our town hall has to be a place where everybody goes in the town to a hall with their bodies, with their faces, with their eyes, with their mouths, and are in a room with one another. I, I think social media does a great disservice to, to us. I mean I mean of course, you know, it's an important tool and it can be used for good things, but we have to we have to put it in a box and we have to acknowledge that It's not a good way to communicate about important issues. And I think we need a lot of people to get on board with that idea. But it's just like nobody knows exactly how to tackle this beast. Yeah. And it's like we've unleashed the beast. How do we get it back into its arena? And let's use social media what it's good for and not let it, you know, suck all of our empathy out of us you know it just it allows for no empathy or nuance Mm -hmm. and that's why you know that's why when you want to have an important conversation with a friend or loved one you call them or you meet up with them you know you don't text them because you know everybody always says you know texting uh, or texting arguments always end badly because you can't tell even emails people get scared to write emails because they're gonna they're afraid they're gonna be taken the wrong way you know what I mean it's just like yeah. texting is a terrible form of communication even letters are better at least you get some sense of like oh care when you yeah. get a letter like texts are just so flippant and brief and easy to send there's there's no care behind them and that's yeah we need to take better care of each other did i did i answer your question yeah i guess i guess
1: (laughs) yes you did i think you 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 answered part of my question which is one how do you feel the second question part of it is sort of like what do you in it's ever since i've seen this show uh i was like what's gonna happen with this show like i saw Mm. both shows and i and i love both of them i was like well nate's the one they'll film because it like it you, you at least can, it's easier to explain and it has clear social themes, blah, blah, blah. And, but it's like, what's going to happen when they film it? Like, how will people react to this thing? And I'm sure you've existed in a world where someone has thrown the word Nanette around because it's a thing that's on Netflix and it's like yeah. not traditional stand up and it's about these themes. Mm-hmm. Um, can, What do you, good or bad or, ex- or, You at your most lofty of how great it can go. Like, what do you imagine happening? Because this is going. This interview is going to come out the day it comes out, and Mm. who knows what's. Who knows how the world will react to this thing?
3: I know, Jesse. I freaking don't know. I'm nervous as hell, and yeah, people have said to me like, "Oh, this is going to be a talking piece, like Nanette was," and. You know, my insecurity just says to me, nobody's even going to watch it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's even going to watch it. But then the other side of me is like, but if people do watch it, maybe they won't like it, you know, or they're not going to think it's funny and I shouldn't have cut that joke and uh, I did it all wrong, you know. But um, right now I'm feeling like I'm just like scared nobody's going to watch it.
1: <laughs> People will watch it.
3: I know, at least for like my tits are out the whole time.
1: Yeah, that will be a headline for lesser places. to be like, well, there's a place to see someone's boobs and be like, all yeah. right. Yeah,
3: lowbrow headline for my, low, yeah, very fitting for my sense of humor. I, I do think,
1: think there'll be, you know? it, that's the thing that I'm, as a person who's on the sort of journalism side of it, I'm like, I imagine they will be incredibly highbrow. Headlines about it and some really lowbrow headlines about it. And I have no sense of like what the discourse will be. Sure. And,
3: but also. That's interesting.
1: But also it's like. The, I guess the question is. Why do it? You know. you What place. What Can you put a finger on. You want to create this sort of like challenging work. This thing that is really true to sort of who you are as an artist. But you were putting it in a position where possibly as many people could see it as can see a thing. What yeah. is that?
3: Ah, uh, gosh. I mean, that is like dumb luck, Jesse. I don't know for like an artist to have a be on a platform with the possibility of so many eyes. Uh, you know, I feel really lucky and like blessed to have the opportunity, but I'm also excited at the possibility that it will create more reasonable discourse around sensitive issues. And I hope what I, what I hope for most is that it makes people realize that we need to have conversations in, in rooms with each other more, even though we might, you know, have to, we have to wear masks Mm -hmm. now. You can still use your mouth behind a, a mask. Um, yeah uh did, did that answer your question yeah
1: i mean i th- I think it's it's hard to answer because it, I imagine it is i just i I could only imagine how overwhelming it is for you I mean, like I think about any, when any time I put out something, you're like, okay, when I have a decent sense of how many people will reach it, but like this is there's so few things that go from such a small world to uh- hypothetical
3: <laughs> so- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm usually playing for like thirty to a hundred people <laughs> yeah. Um, this is definitely going to be different. Um, I hope that people receive it in the way that I intend for it to be received. Um, but you know, I can't, I can't feel the room. I can't adjust. So it's like if somebody is taking it a certain way in their living room, I can't feel that person. I can't feel their energy shift. Um, I can't take a moment to talk with them and see what's going on, you know, and that's something that I think every comedian does when they see somebody's having a, a sour time or whatever, you engage with them. Like I won't be able to engage with, with people when they're in their living room watching this. And so it's, it's a bit nerve wracking that, you know, the energy that comes from this show is kind of out of my hands, you know, but, um. You know, and then I, I've been a cyber bullied before. Whenever I was cast as the Powerpuff Girl, um, a lot of like grown adults were mad that I wasn't the original voice actor. Mm. <laughs> but so I'm like, oh, I wonder like if I'll get any rage from the internet um about this. But you know what? If people don't like it, at least I hope they're talking about it. And I hope yeah. they're talking about it with their friend in person and not just on Twitter.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that sound means it's time for our, our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's it's like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy show, it's a, the laughing round. Um, All right. Do you have a favorite joke, like a joke joke?
3: Favorite joke joke. Um. Oh. Uh. Oh, I know this part's supposed to be fast.
1: It's okay. It never is. It doesn't even have to be good. It just to be the one you think of.
3: Okay, this is one I think of. Um, a joke that I recently saw was um, in the Three Stooges, a cuckoo clock keeps coming out of the house or, you know, a bird from the cuckoo clock keeps flying out and he he is repairing or he's painting the bird on the cuckoo clock, but he doesn't turn off the cuckoo clock and take the bird Got out. It. He waits until the bird comes out of the door and goes, cuckoo, and he paints it just very little every time it comes out. Got it. Which is a very... Um, Long-winded explanation of a very simple gag, visual gag. Mm -hmm. I hope it reads. (laughs) It's just so dumb.
1: It's it is funny. You say it, I'm like, it's a type of joke, visual joke that I feel like I've seen nine thousand times, and I might have seen it never. Like it's so, like you can see cartoons doing it. Like you can imagine.
3: Yes, (laughs) yes, it's classic. It's classic.
1: Um. Is there a a joke or a character that you'd like to steal? Like a, a character that anyone has ever done ever that you wish could be your character and you'd get uh, to do it?
3: Probably Austin Powers. <laughs> I love Austin Powers so much. I love Mike Myers and um I just love all the dumb gags that they do in those movies with like the tits, the melon tits and um yeah, just the whole world. Fat Bastard, Austin Powers. He's like just this horny, lovable guy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you have a comedy crush, a person whose comedy you have a crush on? And if so,
3: who? Hmm. Um, maybe Amy Sedaris doing Jerry from Strangers with Candy. Jerry mm. Blank. I've always had a comedy crush on Jerry Blank. That makes and, sense. Yeah. Uh,
1: what is the first voice you can remember doing and what is the last voice you've come up with
3: the first voice honestly uh austin powers (laughs) when i was a kid i would be like yeah baby i'm horny baby yeah um how old are you
1: were you saying that
3: uh maybe like nine or ten cool and my dad was like, Nat, don't say that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but uh, and then the most recent character I came up with um, is this Italian guy. Um, I do a duo with my friend Courtney Peroso, And we play these two Italian guys, Rigatoni and Ziti Paleroso. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we're these two Italian guys that are stoked that Jill Biden's the first Italian-American <sighs> In the White House,
1: can you tell me what her voice sounds like?
3: Uh, yeah, rigatoni. Oh, his yeah, his voice. He's like, "Hey, how's it going? How you doing?"
1: I, it's cool, Jill nice. Biden.
2: <laughs> Jill Biden, the first Italian American in the White House.
1: Um, and last one. Um, I assume there's many, but can you think of a character that you came up with? that you are like, this is brilliant, this is great, and then you try in front of one audience or multiple audiences, the audience was like, I do not get this. But you'll go to your (laughs) grave being like, that was funny, they were wrong.
3: Huh. Well, that's tough to say because I, like, always try to make something work. And I don't know, this character, I dropped this character after doing it one time because I was like, ugh. This sucks or whatever. But people are like, that, was, that had legs. <laughs> it was a uh, a hiker that gets her arm stuck in a rock, you know, like 127 mm-hmm. hours. And I cut off my own arm. And uh, I have a package of barbecue rib meats in my sleeve. So I'm just like pulling out a ton of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I kind of, I mean, I don't know. The bit. It's not. I don't know if it's dead, so I don't know if that answers your question completely. I'm like,
1: that's the one that is closest to it, though.
3: I've done it, and I was like, "Ugh, it's bad." Is
1: it that people thought it was too gross?
3: No. Um, I think that I more thought like it was just like a one one trick wonder. Like after I cut off the arm, what do I do? So I cut off the arm, and then I and then after I cut off my arm. I said that I hit my head and under my hat I had more rib meat <laughs> mm-hmm. that was like brains and as I pulled the brains out I started going A B C D da 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 and then you know acted like I forgot the A B Cs. <laughs> Got it. And you know, it sounds funny now that I'm saying it back, I'm like, maybe I should maybe I should give that one another go.
1: Yeah, it does but, I do uh, think it has legs
3: yeah but uh it just didn't really hit uh that that well yeah
1: all right that is it thank you so much that that was so great
3: that was really great thank you so much for having me jesse i really appreciate it
1: that's it for another episode of good one you can watch nate on netflix follow natalie on twitter at NatDogCatDog, and that's cat with a k and on instagram at natalie palomidis Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. God from did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts five stars. Please email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with David Sedaris. Have a good one.